0: Welcome to Purdue University College of Science Superheroes of Science Podcast. I'm Stephen.
1: And I'm Sarah. We will be discussing anything and everything related to the science classroom and interviewing scientists.
0: Because as we know, scientists are the superheroes behind the science.
1: So join us as we learn about the scientists and explore current trends in K-12 science education. Welcome to Superheroes of Science. We're here today with Jeff Lucas, professor in the Department of Biological Science at Purdue University. So, welcome, Jeff.
2: Well, thank you very much for having me. Let's let's start with
0: some of the easy questions. Uh, those will lead to maybe harder ones. But uh, it's you specialize in animal communication, right? That's correct,
2: actually, and and I teach a course in animal
0: communication. And so. Uh, wow. What's an overview? What all all do we mean by animal communication that you would research?
2: Well, um, it's a complicated question, frankly, but the general idea is that um, animals, all kinds of animals from, you know, even bacteria, which aren't even animals, all the way up to us, we use signals to convey information to other organisms and indeed bacteria use chemical signals to talk to one another essentially Mm -hmm. Um, and all the way up through everything that you can think of so you go outside right now there are birds singing like crazy um, and what they're doing is they're conveying information about either themselves or other aspects of their environment and they're conveying that information to other Organisms, and in fact, some organisms, even some birds, for example, talk to other species of birds. So, really? so animal communication is really the study of of that interaction between uh, uh, individuals. Um, and and we, in my class, I talk about everything from physics uh, all the way up to sort of you know the mathematical approaches uh, to. Uh, fitness and, and 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 how valuable it is for an individual to convey information that's relevant physiology is another thing that that I'm that my lab has done for a while as well oh wow and so
0: how how do you go about researching uh, researching i it's I mean you I mean you talked about the math of it the physics of it and so what are some methodologies that you would go through that we would understand <laughs>
2: All right, so again, it it depends on the specific question that you ask. So physics-wise, one thing that's quite relevant is I work on sound, I work on um, um, uh, vocalizations. One thing that's really important is how well a sound propagates through an environment uh, and how it might be um, impacted or masked by other sounds that are available in the environment and to some degree that's a physical question um, and and there are quite explicit things that we can say for example sound travels faster if it's uh, if, if the humidity is high sound will not travel well through uh, 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 trunks um, sound is absorbed by leaves and then re-radiated by those leaves and and so, and reverberation is really important in certain habitats, and not so in others. So, so one question that you can ask is, what kinds of propagation properties might sound have in different habitats, and how that how might that affect the kinds of information that an animal can convey to other animals? Um, you can also ask um, how how complex the vocal system is. Um, and there's an idea that we've actually worked on some called uh, the acoustic out adip- uh, 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 the, uh, 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 um, the social complexity hypothesis. The idea about social complexity is that if you have a social system that has lots of dimensions to it, um, So you have individuals doing different things in different ways. So so you might have birds out foraging and having to convey information about foraging. But you might also have those same birds convey information about defending a territory. And they might also have to convey information about different kinds of fights that they have. And so the, the idea that the more dimensions that you have in the social system, the more complex your vocal system has to be in order to convey information about all of those different things that they have to talk about. And so, you know, there's there's an aspect of animal communication that links the social system to really the evolution of of the vocal system. And in fact, one of the species that I work with, Carolina chickadees, have a surprisingly complex social system, and the result is that they have one of the most complicated vocal systems of almost anything that we know of. It's crazy how complicated their call system is. They so and and they use something called the chickadee call. Here, I'll play one. Let's see. So they're called chickadees because that's exactly what their sound their call sounds like chickadee. Yeah. But if you look at that call system carefully, what you find is that in a sense they use about 15 maybe 20 different letters and they put those letters together in something that's that seems like a word. And they can do and by doing that they can generate thousands of different kinds of calls each one of which conveys different information it is amazingly complicated literally thousands of different calls that one type one, of bird? one bird bubba the bird can can give thousands of different different kinds of chickadee calls now the question is why do they do that and the answer is because they have a surprisingly complicated social system, and the social system is complicated not when they're breeding, but when they're not breeding.
1: <laughs>
2: so in the winter, all right. So this is how it works. So in in the spring and the summer, they're normal birds. You know, the, uh, a male and a female will set up a territory and 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 you know make the kids and do that sort of stuff. And then they, you know, everybody's happy and they're you know feeding the kids and all that other stuff. But then in August, September, what happens is that the parents then kick the kids out and the kids have to fly away. But the magic then happens uh, uh, when neighbors will then basically join their territories together and then flock together. Now think about this. So, so in, the, in, the, uh, in the summer, you have very strict um, uh, roles. The parents do what the parents do. The kids do what the kids do. You don't have many different kinds of things that you have to communicate about. Here's food, there's a predator, I'm done. <laughs> in, in the fall, again, what happens is that pairs of birds on their territories will decide to then join their territories together and to generate a flock of anywhere from two to eight, maybe 10 birds. Now, what those 10 birds have to do is to convey information about everything in their lives. They defend that territory as a group, they flock together as a group, they have to find food together as a group, they have to um, look out for predators as a group. And so their vocal system, that chickadee call, has to be phenomenally complicated because the, the range of information that they're conveying in that flock is is extraordinary. And in fact, not only are they flocking with other chickadees, but the, the uh, chickadees then also flock together with other species of birds. Oh, really? Yes, indeed, and um, uh, so in, the, in these flocks around here, there are four major um, contributors, uh, a tufted titmouse, uh, Carolina tickety, uh, downy woodpecker, and a white-breasted nuthatch. are the main um, uh, contributors to these, they're called mixed species flocks. Uh, and the same thing, they have to talk to one another and that sort of thing. And what we found was that the sort of quality of the habitat will dictate how important those associations are. So, so if you have a really high quality habitat, then the, then the mixed species flocks tend to be small and the territories of the chickadees, for example, tend to be small. The, everything they need is on a single territory and so they have these really tight associations with only a few individuals. But if you look at habitats that are rather degraded, so there are habitats where they knock down trees and plant them with, I don't know, walnuts, which is not a good species for chickadees, then what we found is that the space use is completely different. So if you have a degraded habitat, the birds are using much broader range of habitats. They don't, uh, um, They don't defend that habitat so much but they are using lots more habitats. And in fact, they hang out with these other species more than they do in the higher quality uh, uh, territories. And so that has very different uh, requirements with respect to the system. Yeah. Look, uh, wow. Yes, I, I, I figured a bird call it was always exactly the same. Not even a little bit. And here's the best thing. Another thing that we do um, um, is is to ask how birds hear. Now, this is yeah, there we are. So, so this is actually not a, a not a way that people think. So, you normally think you hear this chickadee call. So here's it. Here it is again, right? Or here's the, here's the song of a chickadee. Phoebe, Phoebe, you hear them outside, I hear them uh, and uh, writes out, uh, outside of my house every day. All right, so, so we can think very clearly about the vocal system and to some degree we can think fairly clearly about how that vocal system might convey information. But the magic is that it only conveys information if the receiver of that, uh, uh, of that call can process that sound. Hmm.
1: Um,
2: So we started working on this uh, maybe 20 years ago. Um, And and one of the things that we found, which we didn't even anticipate in the slightest, was not only do species differ in their ability to hear, which is sort of not surprising, but the other thing that we found was that the auditory system, the hearing capacity of a chickadee, for example, in the winter is really different than the hearing capacity of that same bird in the spring. Wow. The so, hearing capacity, as in what they can hear? They retune their auditory system from one season to the next. And the magic here is. That what they're doing is they're altering the really fine processing of, of of sound information, and the point then is that sounds that are extraordinarily important in the fall are actually different than the sounds that are extraordinarily important in the spring, and you see this in in real it's plasticity. You see this in a truly a change in the relative tuning of the ear. And in fact, we were the first lab in the world, in the world, to show that that's, that happens.
0: So when you say tuning of the ear and what they hear, is it, or do they still hear all the other tones? Yeah. Just the way they process and
2: prioritize is differently? That's exactly right. Okay. So if you look at uh, the tickety, um, oh well... Um, so if you look, if you, if you look at a, a, a chickadee, so here's the song of a chickadee, right? Um, here's the song of a white-breasted nuthatch. Yeah? Okay. Hear that? Right, yeah. So they're really quite different. Very different. The chickadee song, Phoebe, Phoebe, is very tonal. Now, what that means is that the tone itself carries information about the quality of the male. full stop. If you listen to the song of the Nuthatch, in some respects, the elements of that song are more complicated in the sense that they're not pure tones. In fact, it's a chord, it's a series of uh, uh, really harmonics. Now, now it turns out that the processing of harmonics is different than the processing of tones. And in fact, um, there's a there's a property of the auditory system of the ear um, that allows you to do one of those things well, but you can't do both well. So the thing, the two things that you that that are um, uh, that are really important that a, that a hearing system can do are one is to process tones and the other is to process something called temporal information or timing um, here, here is for example a tipping sparrow hear that mm-hmm. that's a, all right so that's um that's a trill now most of the information in that trill is in the rate at which those those elements are produced okay. virtually all of the information in the song of the chickadee is is tonal now it turns out that you can do this sort of amplitude modulation changes in intensity of sound with one kind of ear, but if you have an ear that does this sort of temporal information really well, the way it works, the way physiology works, the result is that you don't do frequency well. Here, here's another example of amplitude modulation. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna play a pure tone. Okay. Kind of loud. Sorry. So that's 400 hertz pure tone. Now, what I'm gonna do with that tone? is to generate an amplitude modulation. So by that, what I mean is that the tone itself is gonna stay at 400 hertz, but how loud it is is gonna change over time. And, and listen to this. You hear that? hmm So you hear a beating, and in fact, the rate of beating increases. For humans, it turns out that your ability to to understand what I'm saying, to to the degree to which you do, um, is, is dictated by an amplitude modulation in my voice. So the frequency of my voice does not carry syntactical information. It does not tell you what words I'm using. What you understand from my voice, and the reason you can understand my words is because your auditory system pays attention to the amplitude modulation in my voice and uses that to to um to understand what i'm saying now frequency matters in humans because if i'm really excited about stuff the frequency of my voice increases but but the frequency conveys information about about um, motivation or or, or, um, um, but it doesn't convey information about syntax so so the human ear is really good at monitoring amplitude modulation because it's really important for us to understand what each is what each of us is saying now if we Wow, I, I, that kind of blows me away right there. <laughs> this is really cool. All right, so now, here, let's, so let's go back to, to, the, to the bird song. Pure tone, a series of harmonics. Now, those harmonics actually have a really uh, um, loud amplitude modulation to it, and in fact, that amplitude modulation is really important for the nuthatch, this. There is no amplitude modulation in that song. And in fact, what we find is that the that the ear of the nuthatch is exquisitely designed to pick up amplitude modulation because that's what carries information in that song. But it's even more interesting than that. There's another kind of of sound that uh, nuthatches give. So this is a quank call that's given all year long. Hear it? And here's the song of the same bird. Now, in fact, the quank call, the the rate of, of amplitude modulation in the quank call is actually fairly low. It's about 550 Hertz. The rate and so so um, so there's amplitude modulation in it, but it's slow. The amplitude modulation of the song is actually really high. It's 700 hertz, and that's that's pretty high. In fact, it's high enough that we probably don't hear it all that well. Now, if you take a look at the hearing of the nuthatch, what you find is that they do. 550 hertz really well in the winter when they are processing a call that has a slow amplitude modulation but then in the spring they retune their auditory system in order to be able to hear, hear at a very high resolution the amplitude modulation of the song.
0: So, what all it benefits them in being able to hear differently?
2: The job of a female bird (laughs) is to identify the best male. It's really important. The job of the male is to convey information about his quality. So how does he do it? He does that in birds, uh, many, many birds, in the precision of the production of the song. Now, in order order for that precision then to carry information, the female has to be able to distinguish the songs of different males. And, And again, the point is that the song itself actually has a high amplitude modulation rate. And so it's relatively hard to produce, but it only only a special kind of ear is, is capable of extracting that information at a high enough resolution that the bird can distinguish male one from male two. And that's what we see. But let me give you the flip side of that. There's no amplitude modulation because it's a pure tone. Now what we find with the the chickadees is that for them, the processing of amplitude modulation goes way down in the spring. And the reason that that happens is because for the female, it's much more important for her to be able to resolve frequencies than to be able to resolve amplitude modulation. So, so not only do you get a retuning of the auditory system, but there's a very species specific uh, retuning depending on the kinds of signals that they send and how those signals then encode information.
0: Now, when they flock, sorry, I cut you off, Sarah, I'm sorry. When they flock together in a different species or together in the fall times, are they communicating with each other? And as part of the change to help them understand different
2: types of birds, yes. Uh-huh. Uh, all right, so so here, let me. When we found this, this is yeah. So so here, all right. So here's that quank call of, of a white breasted nuthatch. Now, one of the things that happens in the mixed species flocks is that is that they look out for predators. And when they see something that is kind of annoying but not likely to kill them right away, so let's say they see a, a, a screech owl. Now screech owls can occasionally take, take a bird, uh, take an adult bird, but it's more likely that it might sort of sneak up on, uh, on a bird when when uh, then that bird is sleeping. So what'll happen is that if this mixed species flock, so again, four different species, if this mixed species flock comes upon a screech owl, what they'll do is they'll mob that owl. Now, Now that owl's probably not gonna eat one of them, but they don't want it there because it's in their territory. And so what'll happen is that they'll get together and produce a mobbing call. And in fact, that's what the nuthatch says. Now the magic about that call is that most of the energy is about two and a half kilohertz. So 250, uh, um, uh, uh, 2,500 Hertz and the amplitude modulation of that call is about 550 Hertz. Now we've, we've studied lots of different birds and it turns out
1: Mm.
2: is it's presenting a signal that is likely to be heard by almost every bird in the forest um but again what happens in the spring is that that mobbing doesn't occur everybody the 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 mixed species flocks uh, dissipate and what happens in the spring the most important thing in the spring is for females to be able to distinguish males um and so that's when they have to retune their auditory system to be able to pick up information in the song and less so pick up information in that crank
1: Jeff, I just had a question. I actually have a couple questions. One, how do you go about collecting data to study this? And then two, what role does computers play or computer modeling play in helping you analyze that data?
2: Um, Right, so there is a technique that we, it just fell in our lap. Um, um, It's a long story, I don't have time to talk about the whole thing, but but there is a, technique that's that's been used in humans for many decades, Um, and it's called auditory evoked potentials. Now, the fact is that when you, as you're listening to me, what's happening is that your ear is converting a change in pressure, which is time, uh, uh, I'm sorry, is sound. So sound is just a a change in pressure over distance. Now, what your ear does, in fact, your tympanum, your eardrum, vibrates in response to my voice the job of the ear is to turn that motion into a neural activity and that happens in the inner ear but what neural activity is is and is electricity and so that sound is generating an electrical signal that is the result of the neurons passing uh uh, information up to the brain and there's uh there's equipment that we can use to pick up that electrical potential generated by the processing of sound and those are called auditory evoke potentials and that's what we do now the magic here is that that we can go out and get a bird uh, I can like in, I don't know at, 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 in a half hour. <laughs> I go to my house, I get a bird, I, I collect it, I have to knock it out. I play this bird the, the sound in the ears of these birds. I measure that electrical uh, um, uh, potential. I can then use a computer to convert that electrical potential into an index of exactly what that sound is, how that sound is being produced. And then in about two and a half hours, I let that bird go. So so nothing dies, but we get an incredible index of how that bird is processing that sound. And the other part of the magic is, I can put any sound in the ear of that bird. So I can ask how that bird hears tone. I can ask how that bird hears amplitude modulation. I can ask how that bird hears the song of other birds. Um, and, and what is kind of bizarre is that people weren't using this technique to its full potential. And I don't know why, but we sort of, you know, just fell into this. And we found out very early on that we could ask questions about the auditory system that no one had ever even thought about asking. And since it's so efficient, in one hour I can probably do, I don't know, 20 different experiments on that bird asking about the hearing of that bird. And so what that means is I can go in the field, I can take any species that I catch and then bring it into the lab and and do hearing tests on that bird. So what happened then is that we were able incredibly efficiently to measure the auditory system across seasons in a way that nobody had ever done before. So that's why we the we were the first people to show that there was seasonality and in fact I told a number of people who are who work a really deep understanding of the auditory system nobody initially believed me that there was seasonality in in the processing of sound partly because that's that's not how they thought about things and in fact that's not even how we were thinking about it it was a complete fluke we had some data we had in in the spring and then we just ended up for i don't know years or years we collected it in the fall and then i do the statistics i sat down with the data and i thought no there's something weird going on here and, and in fact, it was seasonality. And we now know that all vertebrates, all of them, show that seasonality. And, and, and uh, in many respects, things like estrogen levels are, are an important driver of those seasonal effects. Wow. Yeah, and the other thing is that um, uh, in humans, women show that much stronger than men because during you, you know, mm. this menstrual cycle, when the estrogen levels are high, their, their um, auditory acuity is much better than when their when their uh, estrogens lo- levels are low. Women don't know that, which is another thing that's actually really cool about sensory biology. There's stuff going on that you have no idea about, but your body does. And so, um, and and for the same reason, right? So, so there are. Um, There are things that are more important when your estrogen levels are high than when your estrogen levels are low. And you get basically a retuning of your entire sensory system. You smell differently when your estrogen levels are high than when they're low. You don't know it, but you do. That sounds like there's a
1: lot of applications from the research that you're doing to like a lot of things with humans. Is that like there's a lot of applications?
2: so uh, one of the things that I love—well, I love Purdue anyway for lots of reasons—but but one of the things that um, that makes Purdue for me such an interesting place to be is that the hearing group on campus is massive, and in fact, speech language and hearing sciences—they have a whole department, you know, half of which is about hearing sciences, right? Um, and so we, the hearing community, on at Purdue. We've had um, a a series of a seminar series that has been going on. I don't know, five years or something, and we all go. and 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 the important thing is that I can tell people who work on human hearing about a much broader understanding of the auditory system. I can tell them about seasonality. I can tell them about the functional aspects of the auditory system in a way that they never think about but that's still useful what they can do for me is to give me insight into these really amazing things that they're doing in human systems and also in other model systems with respect to neurobiology and and you know and others more sort of psychological aspects that help me think about my system and so there's no question that there's a really terrific synergism uh, between in this case you know people who who think about humans uh, and people that think about animals another thing that we're doing uh, in fact we just finished a grant Um, another way that you can then translate this information into more practical aspects uh, is through um using hearing to get some idea about how animals in the field work and we we were funded to work on eagles and look at the sensory system of eagles now um, you you know people are putting wind farms up like crazy right they're really important wind energy is, is useful and you know where it's all wonderful well the problem of putting this massive fan out where there's a lot of wind there is also a lot of birds there and some of those birds are eagles and eagles get killed by wind turbines all the time. And so what we um, what we did was to look at not only the auditory system but also at the visual system of bald eagles and golden eagles with the hope that we can use that physiological uh, uh, understanding. To uh, design some stimuli that might make it much easier for um, for eagles to be then sort of uh, at least alerted, if not sort of repelled um, by wind turbines, and in fact um, that that research is ongoing. Uh, so that that's
0: just amazing. Well, that's,
1: that is so. Thank you so much for joining us today yeah it was fun i think we're we're sort of at our time limit and we wanted to thank you very much for joining us
2: and and thank you for having me Uh, um needless to say i love talking about this stuff so uh yeah
0: As you, I was I, I learned a lot more than I figured I would. I like,
2: okay, it's a bird sound.
0: But now it's it's terrible. Now you're gonna have me outside listening to the birds trying to look at,
2: listen to different ones and see how the they You know what that's the magic of biology, right? And um, you know, I I love to do science when I'm completely wrong. Um, I love to have science tell me, Jeff, stop it. Here's how you think, you know. And so I guess we're done. But so here, here yeah. one other example that I'll throw If we, if you have, have a second, sure. So um, one, one really simple prediction that you could make, which we made, and you know everybody does, and so you know, da. If you have, if you have a song that has a lots of high frequencies in it, then the expectation is that you can process high frequencies well because duh, right? Yeah, yeah. And if you have songs that tend to have low frequencies in it, then yeah, the high frequency hearing shouldn't be all that terrific. Fine. So what we did was to look at the auditory system of nine species of sparrows, and sparrow song is all over the place. And so when you and I do all the statistics, so 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 when I plot out how how um, sensitive these birds are at you know, six kilohertz, actually quite high, at six or five kilohertz, and I plot that as a function of um, the 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 sort of upper ranges of their song, there was no correlation. Hmm. So. So the expectation that if you sing high frequencies, you should be able to hear them completely failed. <laughs> that was so cool. It was crazy. So, so there was an initial level of depression as you as you might expect. But so I, I, I had a postdoc, ring, I, said, I said, go away. Let me think about this. <laughs> there is something going on here. That it, that could be really interesting, and so one thing that we didn't that we didn't think about was what kinds of sounds they're making. And in fact, if you look at the chipping sparrow, you hear that. Uh huh. Um, th- that's a very broad range of frequencies, and some of those frequencies are very high. All right. So then the expectation would be that they have good high frequency hearing but their high-frequency hearing is terrible. Here's a white-crowned sparrow. Now, the magic about the white-crowned sparrow is that they also have a broad range of frequencies, but their high-frequency hearing is through the roof. It's, it's incredibly good. And, and it turned out that what we were completely missing was, where's the information? So in the White crowned Sparrow, it, I'll play this again, but but what I want you to do is to listen to specific elements of that song. And the notion that those particular elements are given at a wide range of frequencies. You hear that, dude? Right, so for them, there's information across that entire being. But let me do the chipping sparrow. So the chipping sparrow song has a series of of notes. But the magic is that it's the note, it's the note themselves, not the frequency of the note that seem to be carrying information. So my take on on the trill. Is that those higher frequencies are almost an artifact of the production of this single element, this chip? And so, you know, again, it's the same thing, right? So you 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 just have a question. I don't care what the question is, but then you ask nature, what do you got from? It? And and when nature says, My dearest Jeff. You are completely wrong, pal. Let me show you. That, that's when science becomes extraordinarily interesting.
0: That is so cool. <laughs> well, its I could see possibly uh, next year I was hollering at you again to get a little further in detail some of this, because it's this is awesome. I mean, our physics teachers are going to love playing parts of this. Our bio teachers are going to love parts of this there's so much in this we appreciate it it's it's fun when we're excited when we're done
2: <laughs> all right well I, I'm, I'm glad you are and in, and like i said in my animal communication class i start off with physics uh, and physics and uh, and foyer transport and i tell them every day some classes more than others but every day i say physics is good for you you know because biologists and physics you know oh. what i'm talking about but um but I think by the end of the semester, they really understand what that's about because you can't understand the physiology of the ear until you really understand deeply what sound is.
0: Yeah.
2: So, so that and the, and that's another wonderful thing about communication is that it really does combine um, ecology and really the sort of mathematics of fitness and the mathematics of sound and the physics of sound and and. And, and it's a it's a it's a wonderful thing to be working on. That's for sure. Uh, it's it's oh,
1: cool. <laughs> well, a thank, you again, yeah.
0: thank you for listening to our podcast. If you love superheroes of science, be sure
1: to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or your preferred podcast player. Be sure to join us as we add interviews of scientists and incorporate discussions of current trends in K twelve science.
0: Until next time, be super, and remember, you are someone's hero. Boiler up.
1: Hammer down.